I'm Bob Schieffer. And I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and this is The Truth of the Matter. This is the podcast where we break down the policy issues of the day. Since the politicians are having their say, we will excuse them with respect and bring in the experts, many of them from CSIS, people who have been working these issues for years. No spin, no bombast, no finger pointing, just informed discussion. To get to the truth of the matter on the U.S.-China trade deal, we'll talk with CSIS's trade guys, Bill Reich and Scott Miller. Mr. Reich holds the Shoal Chair in International Business at CSIS and is a senior advisor at Kelly, Dry, and Warren LLP. Previously, he served for 15 years as president of the National Foreign Trade Council, where he led efforts in favor of open markets and supported the Export-Import Bank and Overseas Private Investment Corporation. Mr. Miller is a senior advisor at CSIS and from 2012 to 2017 held the Shoal Chair in International Business at CSIS, which focuses on key issues in the global economy, such as international trade, investment competitiveness, and innovation. From 1997 to 2012, Mr. Miller was director for global trade policy at Procter & Gamble, a leading consumer products company. Gentlemen, welcome. I'll go to you first, Bill. Who loves this deal and who hates it? I think the farmers love it. Farmers did very well, not only in the purchase commitments, which are substantial, pushing $40 billion over two years, above 2017 level, so it's a significant net increase. But if you go through the agreement, there are pages and pages and pages of very specific market opening commitments by the Chinese in which they agree to eliminate certain very specific regulations, to adopt international standards with timeframes and deadlines for doing it, and not just on the soybeans and corn that you've been reading about, about alfalfa, barley, avocados, blueberries, all kinds of products across the board. In the short run, that won't make huge amounts of difference in terms of dollars. In the long term, I think it's a major market opening concession on the part of the Chinese. Yes. When it comes to agriculture, the the acceptance of USDA foreign ag service standards, uh, which is woven into this agreement, will probably be the biggest long-term gain if, if it's actually implemented as the text says, because challenges uh, based on uh, non-scientific grounds have been a major headache for agricultural exporters in many markets, but China in particular. And so if, if that is one of the long-term effects of this, that's quite positive. Uh, there are a few other positives too. Financial services as an industry did very well in terms of genuine new market access and control over their business that they didn't have before. There's also, uh, frankly, for all anybody doing business uh, from the United States into China, there is a sense of greater predictability this year because I think what we've achieved is with phase one established and agreed and phase two off in the distance, there will have relative stability uh, in terms of trade, in the conditions, and, and that stability and predictability I think is overall a good thing. So, Scott, who doesn't like it? Well, look, I would characterize it as a spaghetti western. We've talked about the good. The bad part is what it hasn't done yet. There's ugly, too. The the bad is that uh, one of the biggest problems in China is subsidies. And subsidies were not dealt with at all in in this particular uh, tranche of the agreement. So phase one 
It did not deal with subsidies. It may or may not have dealt with technology transfer. We'll find that out as we go along. But it's an area of suspicion, at least for me. In my mind, the ugly part is the quantitative commitments of U.S. purchases. My view is most American exporters, most American firms want to compete in a place where markets are contestable. And you, we want to offer best value, best quality, best service, uh, and win the competitive battle rather than having it allocated to us by a government, whether it's our government or somebody else's government. Now, that's the part I'm sure the politicians will all talk about. The, they'll, they'll quote the numbers of, and you can quote them down to the HS 10-digit line if you want to, if you want to get really into, into the details of the annexes. Uh, but uh, practically speaking, I know why they did that. I wish they hadn't. But overall, there are some positives to this. But U.S.-China relationships are complicated. There's a lot more work to be done. Bill, what do you see as the downside, if any? Well, I think there's several. I mean, Scott made the ugly point from, from the trade theory point of view. This is managed trade. It is the Chinese making certain commitments that they'll purchase certain quantities or dollar values of stuff. It is not the normal competition that we like to think is the way the system works. Ambassador Lighthizer is a longtime fan of managed trade. That's what he did when he was uh, in USTR in a different capacity during the Reagan administration. If you're not deeply into the principle of the thing, you know, you pass over that. To me, the, the biggest thing that's missing is the failure to address subsidies, Chinese state-owned enterprises, and essentially Chinese industrial policy. You know, they wrote this monograph called Made in China 2025, which really was a roadmap to developing global champions in 10 different high-tech sectors. And the point of it was to say, we're going to put in a huge pile of money into these sectors. We're going to develop global champions, and we're going to outcompete you foreigners. That's a challenge to the Americans because most of those sectors are areas where we have the lead. Fair competition is one thing. I think our companies are happy to take them on. But when the Chinese say we have $150 billion that we're going to put into semiconductor manufacturing plants, that's a resource bump that we can't really do much about. Well, put it this way. If you have a 5% tariff, you can deal with that. But when your competitor's cost of capital is zero, that's a very different problem. And, right, and is, that's the subsidies problem. And this is left for the next tranche for actually one very obvious reason, which is the Chinese don't want to give that up. And I don't think that we'll be very successful in tranche two, but it limits the effectiveness of what we've done now. Clearly, what we did do is, as Scott said, we restored some stability to the market, made the farmers happy. But to be fair about it, the purchase commitments are also in manufacturing. They're in energy. The oil and gas people, the LNG people in particular, should be happy. Well, they're in services. And, and services, too. It's not just soybeans and corn. Including IP royalties. So send enough Chinese to enough Disney movies, and they fulfill their services obligation. Andrew? Bob, thanks for having me and the trade guys on. You know, as you know, we have our trade guys podcast every yes, week. I know that. So we're gonna we're gonna get to this more this week on our own podcast. With but much more bombast than with, this time. With, with with spin and bombast, of course. <laughs> yes. Here right. is just the fact. Right. And Scott and Scott knows I'm gonna do half of the podcast this week in Coach O's voice. We're gonna do Go Tigers, LSU. Anyway. And I'm um, going to roll my eyes every you're, time we'll you do We'll roll it. his <laughs> eyes. We'll do our normal shtick. But what I wanted to really ask you guys is until now, there's been bipartisan support pretty much for Trump signing this phase one with China. Until now. Because Chuck Schumer is saying that President Trump's phase one deal with China on Tuesday said that it's too weak. Why is he saying it's too weak now? 
And does this signal that this bipartisanship is coming to an end? It's because it's the only thing he can say. Look, last I checked the calendar, we're having an election this year. Oh, yeah. That's okay. true. That's, the, that's your first clue. Right. You know they're going to be against it. And the only thing the Democrats can say about it is not good enough. And he's right. It isn't good enough from a, you know, it isn't good enough in Trump's terms. Well, so it isn't why, everything he wanted. Why isn't it good enough? Because of the stuff that's missing. Well, yes, because as, as Bill and I both talked, there, there are things that have not been done yet. But look at it this way. No one in Washington thinks about the U.S.-China relationship the way many people did in 2015 or 2016. Political scientists talk about the Overton window, mm -hmm. which is sort of the frame for what, where reasonable political discussion happens. No one in Washington, even the critics of the president, say think China is a normal country anymore. Right. That we ought to deal with them on normal terms, with normal kinds of trade agreements, with normal kinds of international uh, principles. The window is broken. That window has shifted dramatically, yeah. and it's shifted by the president. And I think, by and large, the consensus, even from the president's critics, is China can't be treated like a normal country, won't behave like one, and needs the special attention that the president has put on it. Now, whether it's good enough or not, at that point, He's changed the debate. I'd just add, it's not only the president that's changed the debate. No, that's it's, true. The it's the Chinese, Chinese president. Xi Jinping has changed China's policy. When they joined the WTO in 2001, the then Chinese leaders, Jiang Zemin and Zhu Rongji, said, we want to integrate China into the Western trading system. I think the subtext was, we want to use our international obligations through the WTO to force our recalcitrant ministries into doing what they need to do to promote Chinese growth. It was a different message. And I think they were telling the truth then. They're gone. The new leadership is pursuing a much more state-centered economic policy and a policy that takes on the United States, not only economically, but in the South China Sea and regionally in a much more aggressive way. And I think one of the reasons that opinion here has shifted, not the only reason, but one of the reasons that opinion shifted is Chinese policy has changed. Do you think that by agreeing to this phase one deal, as Schumer suggested, we've ceded too much leverage to the Chinese? Look, I, I think the minority leader Schumer was going to criticize this agreement no matter what happened. The fact that he started his criticism with, with currency manipulation was a tell that his arguments weren't that strong. Because most of us who followed this carefully realized that China was, according to the Treasury Department's own criteria, were never really manipulating their currency. They did uh, intervene, and they did have a large bilateral deficit with the United States, but their overall current account is in good shape. And so they don't meet the qualification, and yet that was the first point of criticism. So I, I think, I don't know how much of this is posturing. There is a lot of work to be done, and the approach we're taking is the president seems to be doing it on his own. He's been criticized for not getting cooperation from our allies and partners in this. And I think that's a criticism that will resound to a much greater degree in the days ahead. You know, let me uh, just bring up one thing. Uh, on this podcast, we try to uh, not only just break the issues down to the bare facts, but also the jargon. Sure. When people read that we have accused the Chinese of being currency manipulators, and then this week we declared they're not currency manipulators, what are they talking about? What is currency manipulation? Well, it turns out there's a definition in the statute, and the Treasury Department is the arbiter of this definition. Currency manipulation requires three factors. You basically have to intervene in currency markets on behalf of the value of your own currency as a sovereign. Second, there has to be a large bilateral account deficit, a trade deficit 
uh, with the United States. So it's un unfavorable to us when you manage your currency. But the third criterion is that you have to have a current account that also has a deficit. So in other words, you are trying to export your way out of trouble by, by pushing down your currency. And basically, what are you doing? The issue is whether or not a country is artificially maintaining the value of its currency in order to uh, promote its exports. Promote its exports. They, if they want their currency to be artificially low in value compared, in our case, to the dollar. If they keep it low, it makes their exports cheaper, and it makes our exports to them more expensive. So their surplus goes up, our deficit goes up. So it really is something that's important. Well, it does happen. It happens. It, it does happen. Yeah. The best example of it was about three years ago, uh, the government of Switzerland came out and announced, the Central Bank of Switzerland announced that they were going to peg the Swiss franc to the euro, and it was to in order to support their exporters. I mean. It's like an open and shut case <laughs> of precisely this tactic. Uh, and they, they couldn't afford it to sustain it very long, but they did it for a while to help their exporters. So it does happen. Whether China's doing it or not has always been quite contentious. And most people who look at it carefully would indicate that China does not manipulate its currency. This was a huge issue, and you'll remember this, because it was a huge issue in the 80s with Japan, where the Americans, uh, including the president, uh, accused uh, the Japanese of maintaining the yen at an artificially low rate in order to promote their exports in the United States, beginning with automobiles and a whole bunch of electronic appliances. And that ended with the Plaza Accord in 1986, Six, right. in which Japan agreed to maintain it at a certain exchange rate level. And a lot of those problems then went away. So it does make a difference. It is an issue. People who've watched the Chinese will will tell you that the Chinese were pretty clearly guilty of that for a long time, up until about 10 years ago. Uh, and about 10 years ago, they stopped being guilty of it, and they let it float a little bit. And currently, if anything, uh, far from driving it down, uh, their currency down, they're propping it up. Uh, and if they let the market operate normally – it would probably go down more than it has. Yes, it would. In a way would. that, in a bizarre way, they're doing us a favor. Yes, but despite what Senator Schumer says, their intervention in the market is to prop up the currency, not to drive it down. So, is what we did largely symbolic? I would say so. Uh, given that we, the Treasury is uh, required to evaluate these conditions every six months, and six months ago they announced that China was manipulating. Six months later, they're taking it off. So. But is it important to the Chinese? I mean, symbolic is important. To them. I think they, I think yes. they wanted to get out from under this. Uh, I mean, they believe correctly that they've been unjustly accused. I mean, if if this were two thousand and five, uh, the it's argument story. It would be a different story. But in twenty 2020 twenty or twenty nineteen, uh, they're innocent and they don't like being blamed. So this gets them off the hook. I mean, the reality of of the U.S. law on the subject is that it was never much more than symbolic anyway. Even if you decide that they are a manipulator of currency, the only thing that happened was you were supposed to go negotiate with them and get them to stop. I mean, there wasn't any built-in uh, penalty, but it was like a black mark on your, you know, on, on your report card. So we know the farmers are going to be happy with this. We hope what they, they say is going to happen happens. They're going to get to they sell should more be, yes. uh, to China. But in other parts of America – what will we see here? Are we going to feel this? Is something going to happen as a result of what happened today that we'll immediately notice or even notice down the line? Well, there's a lot of people that have been Americans who've been hurt by the tariffs the president put into place it, uh, and by the Chinese retaliation. So, And this was particularly true in a lot of manufacturing because by putting tariffs on Chinese parts and components, 
it made American products more expensive. Uh, and then the Chinese retaliated, so it made our sales to them more expensive because it bumped up our prices going there. So a lot of our manufacturers took a big hit, and most of those tariffs remain in place. Yes. They haven't gone up, but they're still in place. And what you would assume is many of the supply chain managers, whose lives have been miserable for a couple of years now, have at least figured out how to manage around this and how to how to accommodate it within their acquisition plans and their pricing plans. Uh, what what we're not facing are is a rapid escalation of tariffs on consumer goods. Remember, the last tranche of threatened tariffs on China was on electronics and toys. I mean, the president had positioned Carol, himself to phones be Phones and laptops phones. were the two biggest items. Yeah, the, the, he was going to be the Grinch that stole Christmas had those been implemented. But on December 15th, they were waived as a result of this reaching the phase one deal. Now, if you talk about winners and losers, there's another winner in this scenario. And the other winner, I think, is Vietnam. Because well, this was even before the tariffs companies were beginning to move out of China to go somewhere else, largely because labor costs in China had been going up. The tariffs have accelerated that. If, you know, if your business model was to make things in China and then ship them back to the United States, that suddenly got much more expensive. And if your business was one that wasn't very capital intensive, say you were making t-shirts, it's not that hard to say, oh, I'm going to shut my factory and Wuhan, I'm going to move to Bangladesh or I'm going to move to Vietnam uh, and open one there because then there wouldn't be any tariffs or any beyond the normal ones. Now, if you just built a, you know, a $2 billion automobile plant in China, you're not going to move next week. But overall, Vietnam has been a big winner as companies move out. And you can see it in their trade deficit or our trade deficit with Vietnam, which has gone from the mid 20 billions to over 50 last year. So China has gone down a little bit. But others have gone up in a major way. And how will the Japanese view this? That's a good question. Thus far, they've been surprisingly and astonishingly quiet throughout the process. Some of this is, to, I think, a credit to Prime Minister Abe, who manages his personal relationship with the president very well and has managed commercial relations with the United States quite professionally at a very high level since uh, President Trump entered office. Uh, so they've stayed out of fights that they don't have to get into. I mean, just yesterday, his defense minister, Abe's defense minister, was here at CSIS, here in town visiting his counterpart, Secretary Asper. Not a word. Now, they are working with the United States on a, a, a WTO approach to subsidies which if U.S. and Japan and Europe could actually agree, it would put some pressure on Chinese subsidies. We're nowhere close to agreement, mostly because Europe can't figure out how to discipline Chinese state-owned industries and not their own. <laughs> so we've got a ways to go. But Japan's been quite cooperative on that. So they, they've been quiet. I think they're, they're, they're not really harmed by well, the fight. There's one area where they're very nervous, and they've, they've talked to us here at CSIS about this at considerable length over the last couple of years. The Chinese are doing the same thing to Japan that they're doing to the United States. They're trying to acquire technology through investment. And they're buying Japanese companies that are make critical technology, just as they're trying to buy American companies. The Japanese have set up the same process we have to screen those investments and prevent the ones that the government doesn't like. But their government is very nervous about this because they see an outflow of technology that will work to their disadvantage. And they've been trying to encourage the Americans to work with them 
to make sure that we have a united front. Yeah, Bill raises high technology, and this was part of a speech that uh, former Secretary Hank Paulson gave at CSIS last year, where he called this the technology cold war between the United States and China, which is ongoing, which was not settled by phase one and probably won't be settled by phase two, and will continue to fester in, as time goes on. Okay, guys. So administration saying as soon as phase one signed was today, phase two begins. So what begins now? Well, I think they have the remaining agenda, which we've, we've talked about what's missing. That's what they're going to talk about. I think they'll talk about it for a long time. The debate we've been having internally here uh, is not when it will start, which will be soon, but whether it will ever finish. Right. Because I think that it's unlikely the Chinese will do what we want. My sense has been that in the end, the president will have a choice, in a way, the same choice as he had with phase one, to accept something that is less than he wants and say it's great, uh, or to take some kind of further retaliatory action, or he's hinted at this, to kick the can until after the election. Right. And you think he's not doing anything on phase two until after? Well, if he gets no, I, I, think, I think his first choice would be to get an agreement that he can brag about before the election. So if in October he can get something that he can say addresses these problems, whether it does or not isn't the point. If he's got an agreement that he can sell as addressing these problems, I think he takes it. At the same time, I think he's increasingly aware that that's a long shot. Uh, and so rather than get to October and have to say, well, I failed, he's setting the stage now so he can pull the plug in October and say, well, you know, they won't give me a good deal now because they're going to, they think that, you know, my opponent's going to win and they're waiting for the next guy. But uh, once I win and they know I'm here for four more years, then they'll give me a better deal. So I'm going to wait till then. That's what he'll say in October well, if he thing, can't get a good one. Does this in any way improve the such? I mean, there's no question that Chinese have been trying to steal our technology. We've had the problems with the international copyrights and all that. Does this so far do anything to improve that situation? Well, they have some serious commitments. On paper, it On does. paper. <laughs> and that's, for me, what, what, what I'm going to be watching over the next few months. Phase one, particularly in technology transfer and intellectual property, is not an ice cream cone that licks itself. Okay, somebody's going to have to implement <laughs> these provisions, all right, and they're going to have to make them work. And they're quite, if you read the language, they're quite robust. China commits to provide transparency, fairness, and due process in proceedings on tech transfer and to make sure things happen on market terms. I mean, this is a step change away from Chinese practices that are deeply embedded, uh, not just at the federal level, but at the provincial level. But in they've China. made these promises before. And they've made the promises before and not delivered them. So somebody's got to make sure they deliver them. They've got to implement the systems that are required. Uh, some of these things, like trade secret theft, are going to be very difficult to root out. One of the new things in this agreement that a lot of people will be focusing on, because of exactly what Scott just said, is there is a dispute settlement article. And it's very interesting because it's different from any other dispute settlement system that, that we've seen in that it's very unilateral. Uh, it sets up, like all of them do, levels of discussion. So there's a working level, there's a deputies level, there's a ministerial level. If you've got a grievance, you take it to the lowest level, and if they don't solve it, it works its way up. You know, But at the end of the day, if the ministers, which in this case would be the U.S. Trade Representative and his counterpart, uh, who's not named, it would probably be Liu He, the guy who signed the paper, if they can't agree, then it's a very interesting phrasing. The complaining party which will probably be us, can take unilateral action 
And the Chinese then have a choice. They can decide that we've acted in good faith, in which case they can't retaliate. The agreement prohibits that. The only alternative they have is if they want to argue that we've not acted in good faith, they can withdraw from the whole agreement. That's a pretty high bar. You know, and if, you, if somebody brings in a, uh, you know, a complaint that says, well, they've got this uh, agriculture thing that they haven't done, I don't see them torpedoing the entire agreement because of one problem. You're right, because of and, one, one inspection system. Yeah, and, right. this is, and this is what Lighthizer wanted. He wanted a system in which the United States could do whatever it wanted and they wouldn't be able to do anything about it. And this actually goes significant steps in that direction. And it's different than the times in the past where China's promised and not delivered. So that's a, that's a new ingredient, and given the brilliance and toughness that Lighthizer has shown in various negotiations, this one may work. Who knows? But the answer will be down the road. What's the heaviest lift for phase two? Phase two, yeah. yeah. The heaviest lift will be subsidies, subsidies yeah. getting rid of subsidies. Because if they get rid of subsidies, then they can't do their industrial policy. Simple as that. It would force them back into being a normal market economy. I mean, the irony of all this is that that would actually be good for them. You know, it would be good for economic growth. Their economists will are no doubt telling Xi Jinping these are not bad ideas. They would, however, undermine the party's control of the state. And what we were talking about, Xi Jinping being different before, he has equated economic control with political control. And his predecessors were prepared to give up some economic control in the interest of more growth as long as they maintain political control. This guy is tightening economic control, and which is why he's not going to agree to our demands. That's the heavy lift. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us uh, and helping us get to the truth of the matter on this very important issue. We'll be back next week. I'm Bob Schieffer. And I'm Andrew Schwartz. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 